Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Darling, do you have sway? Hey, Sway listeners, welcome to a bonus episode with New York Times cybersecurity reporter Nicole Perlroth. We're here to talk about my latest interview with Microsoft President Brad Smith. If you haven't heard the episode, I am admonishing you to go back and listen. It's right behind this one in your podcast app. Anyway, Nicole, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. So your book is amazing, I have to say. Um, It's called This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends, The Cyber Weapons Arms Race. It's a terrifyingly ominous book, just so you know. Excellent job on scaring me completely. Good. But I'd like to know what a catastrophic breach looks like. So for a long time, a lot of government officials warned of what they called a cyber Pearl Harbor or cyber 9-11. Mm-hmm. And what they meant by that was just some kind of calamitous attack on, let's say, a chemical plant that would cause an explosion and kill people. And that analogy was always pretty problematic because, one, we didn't see the Japanese planes coming whereas we've seen the cyber equivalent coming for more than a decade. And two, it's always been sort of a distraction from the predicament we're already in, which is that everything that could be intercepted already has been. You know, just in the last five years, we've seen Russians hit our nuclear plants. China took a brief pause, but they're back to pillaging our intellectual property. Iran, which used to be sort of this digital backwater, is now one of the most prolific cyber armies in the world. And we have cyber criminals basically holding hospitals, schools, and cities hostage with ransomware every day. So it doesn't have to be a calamitous attack. Explain what a ransomware attack is. So a ransomware attack is just when cyber criminals come in and essentially encrypt all your data and hold it hostage till you pay some ransom, usually in Bitcoin. But what's happening is that they've found that we have this very sweet spot in critical infrastructure like hospitals where they can go in and lock up patient records and they're charging exorbitant fees. I mean, these ransom demands used to be a couple hundred dollars only five years ago, and now they're getting as high as a couple million. And one of the reasons why we got here is because the tech sector in particular kind of bought into this Silicon Valley promise of a frictionless society where everything was accessible and everything was convenient. And at the government level, you know, when they found these problems with security, they didn't automatically say, okay, I'm going to turn over this problem to Microsoft or Apple or Google. I'm going to hold on to this because it's helpful in spying on terrorists. And the problem is that these gaps and openings are now really coming back to bite us. And really the clearest example now is what we're dealing with with this latest Russian solar winds attack. This is the Russian breach of over 250 government agencies and corporations that was missed for the better part of a year. Um, do you see the solar winds hack as a catastrophic breach or just an early warning signal that one is possible? Well, I think it's one step removed from totally catastrophic. And by the way, it wasn't just government agencies. It was Los Alamos nuclear labs. A lot of electrical utilities used SolarWinds software, the software that provided the Russians their conduit for this attack. But we're told that really the goal here was espionage. 
and that we should be grateful <laughs> for that. <laughs> that they didn't want to wreck it. Right. But, you know, Russia has used that same access. They pulled off the same attack in Ukraine and they used their access to hold systems hostage. And in one case, or two cases, actually, they, they used a cyber attack to shut off power in the dead of winter. So, Russians can still use their access that they got with solar winds to essentially exact destruction, but we're not there yet. Explain why this hack is so unique. Explain what happened here. So I actually thought Brad Smith did a really excellent job in your interview with him explaining this. And the big thing about solar winds was they brilliantly exploited gaps in our systems on so many levels. You know, first of all, um, they broke into a company that we now know had poor security, SolarWinds, and they got in through their software. They got into their software and into their build server, and then they sent out their malware, essentially, through SolarWinds software update. So they they sent it out, and it got into all these 18,000 companies and government agencies were hit with this, but they were resource constricted because you can't just go hack all 18,000. So right. they picked and chose and they got into the Department of Energy, the nuclear labs, the Department of Homeland Security, the very agency that's supposed to keep us safe, parts of the Pentagon, State Department, Justice Department. But they did it in a way that was also really brilliant in that they pulled off this attack from U.S. systems, from GoDaddy, you know, they did it in a way where it was really exploiting an NSA blind spot. You know, the NSA is not allowed to look at these domestic systems. And so they missed this. And the other thing they did was once inside, they were inside for so long, practically a year, that we don't know how many back doors they planted. They added. In the he was talking about windows. He said they closed the back doors and then opened windows and other access points. Yes, exactly. And I think it could be a year. Or more before we are confident where those back doors and windows are. So w- one of the things we discussed when we talked about solar winds was Microsoft was of course affected, but Brad seemed frustrated by government response. Mm-hmm. Was his critique fair? I think so. I think I think it was. I mean, his take is that we need to have better coordination and we have need to have better right, threat across sharing. the NSA, the FBI, everything else. Exactly, and I think. Part of his frustration was that government agencies were coming to Microsoft after this to try to understand if they were hit or to confirm that someone else was hit. I mean, that just seems really backwards. (laughs) (laughs) You would think that the NSA would be letting these agencies know, yes, you were hit. Here's how they did it. Let's help you find these back doors. And instead, they're calling up private companies. And that really continues to be the most stunning aspect of this attack is you know, for all the NSA's hacking and and active defense, they call it, you know, we've been hacking into Russian systems for decades, partly to get an early warning system on what they're up to, partly as digital mutually assured destruction. But we totally missed this. The only way that we knew that this attack was happening was because FireEye, the Silicon Valley security company, was itself hit. And then in the course of rewinding its own attack, discovered that this was much bigger. So one of the things Brad said is a lot of these companies don't like to admit there are problems within the companies. What would have happened if FireEye had not come forward about detecting the hack? Well, thank God they did. I mean, most companies haven't. You know, there were other vectors used in this attack, and people are learning that they were used as a vector, and we still don't know who those other companies were. We know FireEye was breached, then SolarWinds, then Microsoft itself— then there's more and more and more. 
But really, you know, no one would have known if FireEye hadn't stepped up and said, we were breached. And that was even before they understood the extent of it. And so I think that's what Brad's saying is the minute the NSA or whoever learns that they were breached, they need to tell people. Uh, Brad Smith suggested the need for a law, a kind of disclosure law that would require corporations to inform the U.S. government of breaches uh, immediately. What do you think of that? For too long, companies have sort of said, well, if they didn't hack the customer data and social security numbers, we don't actually have to disclose this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting in FireEye's case because the hackers didn't get their customer data. They technically wouldn't have had to disclose it, but they did anyway. You know, same with Microsoft. They, they viewed their source code, but they didn't get access to data that would have required them by law to disclose it. But thank God they did. Um The problem is most companies are not like FireEye and Microsoft. And with a breach notification law, the problem is you need to know yourself that you were breached. And so in some ways, it creates a little bit of a perverse incentive in that it sort of incentivizes companies not to know if they have been breached. And so I think that's something that that would be a little bit trickier to handle. So one of the things Brad said, and he Let me quote him. The government itself cannot scan the horizon from left to right in terms of breaches or threats. Should there be one singular agency for the U.S. government? I don't know. I mean, what I do know is that CISA at the Department of Homeland Security is supposed to be looking after our critical infrastructure. Um, But they're really limited in what they can do. I mean, most of our critical infrastructure is owned by the private sector. And so all they can really do is say, hey, here are the best standards for security and you should meet them. But there's no real stick there. And then the other thing is, you know, the NSA has two obligations. One is to protect American secrets. And then the other is to break into foreign networks and collect other countries' secrets. And I think the problem is we've over-tilted on finding other people's secrets without protecting our own. Right. And they have limits to what they can do in this country. They're internationally focused. Right. And I think we're never going to get to a place where Americans are comfortable as they are, let's say, in Israel, saying, yeah, the government can look after our private sector systems and our civilian systems and block threats in our network. You know, after Snowden, there's just no way that that's ever going to happen. And so I think what Brad's saying is, if we're never going to basically allow the government into our systems to block and defend attacks as they come, we at least need to have better coordination on threat sharing. But is there any move to do a singular agency? I don't think we're going to get there just because of the gridlock. Um, A lot of people have said, let's break apart the NSA. They can continue to do their offensive operations, but let's move their defensive operations elsewhere because clearly offense is taking priority over defense. That sounds good in theory, but the problem is you need to know how to attack a system to really know how to defend it. And so one thing people say is it's good to have the the attackers and defenders in the same building. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Biden administration and how they're figuring this out and the, what the Trump administration did. Did they gut our cybersecurity prowess? I think that whatever cybersecurity we did under Trump, it was in spite of Trump, not because of him. You know, we have Chris Krebs and his deputies to thank for making sure that we did have paper records from a lot of these ballot marking machines. But at the same time, Chris Krebs was in charge of the agency that oversaw cybersecurity and completely missed a nine-month Russian attack on its own systems. So 
we're lucky that we're still here (laughs) and that there weren't worse attacks, but the attacks were very bad under Trump. And and that's because why? And that's because, well, we have not come up with a good deterrent strategy. For years, we said, as long as we can outsmart the enemy in cyberspace, as long as we are the most sophisticated hackers in the world, then no one can outsmart us. But the problem is, you know, the U.S., sure, it it remains the world's top cyber superpower, but its lead is slipping. And the dirty little secret that no one in government wants to talk about is that we're also its most targeted and the most vulnerable because we are so digitally connected. And so it's time to really take defense seriously. And I think Biden does get it. He just said cybersecurity will be one of his top priorities. And the Russian hack makes it, he has no excuses not to make it a top priority. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't know how they're going to go about that in practice. So uh, he also warned the Russians in this regard, He, as opposed to Trump, who was always saying they yes. say they didn't do it. They didn't do it. Well, you know, I'll tell you, when I watched Trump get up there next to Putin in Helsinki, essentially he was just giving him a pass on hacking our most precious crown jewel, our democracy. And Putin, in the end, didn't really hack our election this time around, but he got away with this pretty pervasive attack of our software supply chain. And now, essentially, the Biden administration is coming in and using an IT system it just can't trust. Yeah, yeah. I've been talking to people inside and they're like, you don't understand the mess that we have to clean up. You know, we need to know what's in our software. We need to know what's touching our network. You know, when I called up a lot of the victims from the SolarWinds attack, most of them didn't even know they were using SolarWinds. Ah, because so many vendors, there's so many vendors involved in all these networks. Um, so does the uh, does the Biden administration have a good IT uh, person? Uh, any thoughts on Ann Neuberger, who was just tapped to be the new deputy national security advisor for cybersecurity in the new National Security Council? Is there any key people you think we have to watch? So Ann, I think, is a great first choice because, you know, she did come from NSA, but under her leadership there, The NSA did start making fledgling steps to make cyber threats more public and give companies more actionable intelligence. It wasn't a lot, but coming from the agency that we all used to joke was no such agency, Mm -hmm. it was a big step just that they were talking about the threats they were seeing at all. Um, The other person that has been floated for Chris Krebs' previous role is Rob Silver's. So Rob's a lawyer, um, but he was he was active in the Obama administration, essentially on the Chinese threat. And if we all remember that attack from North Korea on Sony Pictures, it was Rob that was really on the forefront of responding to that attack. Um, Rob was at the Department of Homeland Security when China hacked the Office of Personnel Management and took everyone's uh, security clearance applications, which included everything from you know, their medical records to their fingerprints. And so he's been a victim of these attacks. And he was there helping the Obama administration negotiate a deal with Xi Jinping, whereby China would cease its attacks for intellectual trade theft. And that that agreement, you know, it stuck uh, until Trump sort of flipped the table over with his trade war. And so, you know, one of the things I know that will probably be a priority is getting another deal there so that China's just not carting off our intellectual property. Yeah, that's important. What about uh, TikTok? What is going to happen with that 
speaking of an apple cart, Trump upended and then went nowhere. This was the idea that TikTok was spying on our teens and needed to be stopped. It's kind of the shiny object and we have much bigger fish to fry. I have the exact same take, (laughs) Nicole. I'm like, focus over on AI, focus over here, focus. Like, seriously, this is not the hill we want to die on with China. But what will happen? I mean, obviously, people... And focus on solar winds. I mean, focus on our own software, everything that's in government IT networks and the electrical grid. All right, I do want to talk about the other, the companies here in this country, what we should do about them. But are you suggesting that U.S. offense is better than its defense? Well, I think American offense is better than probably anyone else's in the world, you know, with the exception of, you know, Russia, China, maybe Israel um, and the UK. But we are also its most vulnerable because we are the most digitally connected and we have the most to lose, essentially, because we have just hooked up so much of our economy and transportation and, and healthcare to the internet. Um, and even our cyber weapons. And, you know, clearly we are lacking in defense because just in the last five years, we've seen someone, we don't even know who, a mystery hacker group that called themselves the shadow brokers, was actually able to get inside the NSA and steal its hacking tools. So you can have a really good offense, but, you know, if you're not locking up these tools, if you're not locking up our elections and our hospitals, like, what's the point, you know, because... Ultimately, the goal is to keep Americans safe, right, with all this hacking. And and unless you're actually turning around and making sure that all our doors and windows are locked up too, it's really easy for these other countries to come knocking. And the thing about these other countries is countries like North Korea, I mean, look at them, you know, they don't have much virtualization there. Mm-hmm. They're the hermit yeah. kingdom. So they've learned that they can pull off these spectacular cyber attacks without the skills of the NSA and wreak the same kind of destruction and the same kind of financial profit. And if we turned around and tried to take them offline, kind of so what? They just aren't that hooked up. Right, right. So that's, that's so that gets into the last thing we're talking about, which is these companies. One of the things Brad and I talked about was antitrust and regulation. Mark Zuckerberg said this to me a couple of years ago. Um, we have to be this big, Kara. We have to be this powerful in order to fight China. That's their thing, or fight China mm-hmm. or Russia. What do you think the administration needs to do to regulate these companies while also giving them enough power that the same time. I, I think they do have too much power, period. Mm-hmm. I think you were right in your interview with Brad, by the way, that I think Apple will end up figuring out some kind of quiet settlement around the App Store. But, you know, clearly look at what's happened just with Facebook and Twitter over the last five years. I mean, it's completely changed our public discourse. Disinformation was rampant. There's just no no disputing that. And Parlor. I mean, let's just talk about Parlor for a second, too. Yeah, you just wrote about that. You just wrote about Parlor's antitrust case against Amazon, which failed so far. Where do you think this action goes? Talk a little bit about what happened with Parlor, which had been cut off from all its various large companies. Well, you know, I think Parlor had a huge moderation problem. I mean, when I looked, there was one guy, he was a security researcher, he said, he tweeted out, I've been on Parler for two weeks, and the only thing that's ever been deleted was a comment I made about Devin Nunez's lawsuit against a cow. You know, and then meanwhile, I'm going on Parler and I'm seeing these horrible, horrible comments about butchering and murdering Democrats and their children and calling them communists and saying we should like pillage and rape their wives, and that stuff's being left open. So these companies set 
terms and policies for how people can use the platforms and they can do whatever they want. You know, if someone is violating the, the, their terms of use, they can kick them off. It's not censorship. It's it's how their policies work. You know, I like actually something Eric Schmidt said. I don't buy into everything he says usually, but he did say, I believe this in- This is the former CEO of Google. Yeah, former CEO of Google said, you know, I believe in free speech, but I don't believe in free speech for robots. And, <laughs> you know, Twitter <laughs> has good. a huge bot problem. It just yeah. does. Facebook had a huge fake accounts problem. So clearly the companies have not been able to regulate these issues on their own. And I don't know what the answer is. I just know that we can't just leave it to the private sector to work this out. And are and being too big, is there any argument to be made that which they make is being this big protects all of us? The only area where I think that actually works, ironically, is cybersecurity. Like mom and pop shops who used to have their back-end server and their back office somewhere just don't have the same security resources as Amazon Web Services does in the cloud. And Amazon and Google and Facebook have hired former NSA intelligence analysts. So in that sense, being big and powerful and having the resources to hire up your own intelligence team is a good thing. But where that breaks down is on things like privacy and setting the rules of of the market. And I thought Brad made a really good point about what Australia is doing right now, where they essentially said, you know, if Google wants to operate there, they're going to have to give some of their proceeds to local news organizations to address this news desert issue. And Google said, if you do that, we'll pull out. And so Microsoft said, we'll come in with Bing, which, you know, it, it showed the power of competition because the next thing that happened was Google said, oh, well, maybe we won't just back out. And I think that competition is is really important on a lot of these issues. So, you know, that's where antitrust comes in and it's not my area of expertise, but I hope it can at least solve this problem, which is that we continue to let, you know, as you've written, these billionaires mm-hmm. decide the rules of our public discourse um, and news. And that's- And that's security. A, and security. Yeah, which is, I think, a problem. So your book, again, it's called, This is How They Tell Me the World Ends, the Cyber Weapons Arms Race. How does the world end, Nicole? (laughs) Well, I think it's ending with a death by a thousand cuts. You know, I think every day we've sort of normalized these attacks now. It's like news at 11. I joke sometimes I've become like the cop reporter, you know, Home Depot is breached, news at 11. Um, <laughs> but it's just like, it's it's happening everywhere you look. And it's, unfortunately, it's an invisible threat. So you don't see it until you feel it directly. But it is a real problem that the government can't trust its own communication channels. It is a real problem that we're in the middle of a pandemic and our vaccine supply is getting targeted by hackers and that our hospitals are getting held ransom. And it's a real problem that all our most vibrant companies are seeing their intellectual property carted off and given to China's state-owned enterprises. And if we're sort of the status quo, then we are going to get to that calamitous world-ending attack. You know, it's not going to be world-ending, but it's going to cause an explosion at a chemical plant, or it's going to take out a nuclear plant or shut down the power grid. And we know that these things happen because we saw Russia do this in Ukraine. They only did it for a couple hours. But when I went to Ukraine, they said, listen, like, They sent us a message, but really at the end of the day, we were just their test kitchen for you. If you don't watch what's happening here, it will happen to you. And when it does happen to you, it will be a lot worse because you are so much more digitally connected and vulnerable than we are here. Well, because we're just at the very beginning of the the digitization of our world. That's the 
promise and also the danger of it. Exactly. Um, okay, my very last question. Without TikTok, how do you dance, Nicole? <laughs> okay, so I just use Sonos and okay. my two-year-old, I'm teaching him about music right now. We were listening to Aretha Franklin last night. We were dancing to Yellow Submarine. I know you have a newborn. Like, Thank God for these babies. They have no idea this pandemic is happening and they're yeah, just demanding I that I dance on command and it's helpful. <laughs> so, you know. All right. Okay. It's unclear if Sonus will get you as good as dance moves as TikTok, but I accept this. I accept this answer. Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Once again, if you're not subscribed to Sway, do it now. New episode on Thursday. Speak to you then. Thank you. 